Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, as you can well imagine, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together today or whenever you're listening. It is today for you, whatever day you're listening. Uh, I'm going to make a few reflections on the death of the Queen in a moment and then turn to your questions, many of which, as you can imagine, about precisely that. And then we move on uh, to um, some other kind of notices and that kind of thing at the end and indeed at the beginning because there's an important notice uh, at the very beginning, as some of you have tweeted to me and emailed me about Uh, The live show, Rock and Roll Politics Live, and indeed streaming live from King's Place on September the 19th, uh, clashes with the uh, Queen's funeral. And uh, I think most theatres and things are closing that day, and King's Place is closing that day. So it's not September the 19th, it's moved to the following Thursday, the Thursday of that week. King's Place will be in touch. Uh, There will be a link on this blurb to the podcast to where you can get tickets for Thursday of that week. Um, And it will be streamed live as ever uh, on the Thursday. So the Liz Trust special, because scrutiny of her has been postponed. Uh, So we will need to get together that evening uh, very much and obviously reflect on other events as well. So that's when it is. Um, And that's really the uh, only notice. Oh, yeah, the other one, uh, Patreon subscribers. Again, thank you so much for doing so. Uh, You will have had your bonus podcast of the relationship between Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. It's the last of that series, another sequence starting uh, next month in October. So if you subscribe now, what a catalogue. You get um, reflections on cinematic and historically significant general elections. You'll have had episodes on the relationship between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, uh, David Cameron and Steve Hilton, and now Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair. Uh, I think others as well. So, you know, do subscribe if you're up for it. Um, Anyway, look, thanks so much for tuning in. Now, if it's okay with all of you, gently and politely, I'm going to reflect on some of the observations I've heard in recent days since the death of the Queen, uh, which I want to kind of gently challenge. The first one is one that I've heard often and from some of the people I respect most in uh, journalism, um, which is that the Queen defined an era. Uh, The Elizabethan era has ended with her and began when she took to the throne and the span uh, is reflected in her reign. Uh, I revere and admire Andrew Marr for his depth and range and curiosity more than just about any other journalist, but it is very much one of his uh, theories. He's not an ardent monarchist, um, but he sees an Elizabethan age, and many others have as well. And yet at the same time, the same people and many others observe uh, that part of her genius was her absolute 
neutrality and impartiality. Uh, no one knew really where she stood on any issue ever. There has been speculation, but it has only been that. And yet I see those two observations as contradictory. If a person is not known for a view or can influence events because of that huge, huge constraint, how can that same individual define an era in any way that is profound? I'm writing a book at the moment, I think I've mentioned it, on turning points in modern Britain since 1945. So much of that era spans uh, her time as queen. And yet, uh, you know, and this isn't some sort of willful exclusion or anything. There has been no point so far, I haven't written that much of the book, but at no point so far has it felt central to write about the involvement of the monarch. Now, that should be, perhaps for those who hail the neutrality, a good thing. But how at the same time could that person define an era? You see, if you look at something like the Suez Crisis in 1956, an astonishing few months that brought about the fall of Anthony Eden, who turned from a kind of jingoistic potential war leader in July 1956 when NASA renationalized or took over the Suez Canal, had fallen uh, by January 1957, an epic moment in post-war British history. She was queen uh, and yet not a key factor in it. Arguably, she was when Tory prime ministers emerged. So she appointed uh, the successor, Harold Macmillan. It could have been Rab Butler, but that was on the advice of others. No one knows what her personal preferences were, and they did not come into it. Again, a quality, arguably, but one that limits a person's role to define an era. If we move on, say, to the social reforms of the 1960s, um, the Roy Jenkins social reforms when he was Home Secretary, uh, the Abortion Act and many other acts which changed uh, the way people could behave in profound ways. Um, they were political acts and rightly so. Some people disagreed. Many agreed with those social reforms at the time and retrospectively. What else defined the 1960s? Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Beyond the Fringe, The Beatles, Monty Python. And then in the 70s, the industrial turmoil, which kind of defined all our lives, the three-day week, the power cuts, the strikes, the uh, at the same time, the many kind of social reforms introduced by that minority Labour government. And culturally, the BBC was at its peak in the 1970s. And the, I kind of think the figures that defined that form of Britain you know, the kind of escapist cultural symbolism was as much Bruce Forsyth and the Generation Game, Michael Parkinson and his wonderful chat show in the 70s, the Morecambe and Wise show, kind of was more, none of them were political at all, and yet kind of hovered over us in ways that were more clearly defined, I think, uh, than the monarch.
Um, you know, I had an email from uh, one of our listeners, Matthew Ryder, who wondered about the Queen's role in the Northern Ireland peace process in the New Labour era and actually in the John Major era uh, in the 1990s. Well, it reflected her adaptability. There was that famous historic handshake with uh, Martin McGuinness uh, and her. Uh, but she was not an instrument. You know, Major was, the Irish government was, you know, all the players in that complex politics of Northern Ireland were, Bill Clinton was from the United States. And they helped to define part of that kind of optimism of the late uh, 1990s. Before that, we had the 1980s. Um, Thatcherism uh, defined that era uh, vividly and profoundly. Uh, and then we had the counter with New Labour and then the revival of Thatcherism under David Cameron and George Osborne. Um, and then the sort of move to a kind of right-wing English nationalism uh, led by the mighty ERG group in the Conservative Parliamentary Party that held scared Conservative prime ministers in their toe. These have defined the period uh, which spans her reign, um, and not her. Now, obviously, as people reflect on the years in which she uh, was the queen, they reflect uh, about the kind of image of her being constantly present. And that is true, and it is in some ways disorientating when such a presence is uh, dies. Um but 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 that in a way is the limit of it. I'm being sort of trying to be diplomatic. Um, but if she is going to and did observe all the constraints about what someone can say, never giving an interview, uh, never expressing a comment um, of a kind of you know controversy, that is inevitably. Uh, the limit. So I do not think uh, there has been an Elizabethan era which ended last Thursday. And indeed, after the funeral next week, uh, things will very quickly seem normal again. And of course, people will be a bit sort of, oh, yeah, the, oh, it's the king on the stamps. And oh, on Christmas Day, it will be the king's speech, those that watch those speeches. And incidentally, there was a fascinating program on the BBC about the preparation for those Christmas speeches and they were very intensive and took a long time and many people involved. When I think of some politicians having to make speeches very quickly, um, it was uh, a sequence in which, frankly, by the end of it, most people could have delivered such uh, speeches. Um, so that will all feel slightly different, but I think only slightly to be honest. Um, and on that, uh, when people sort of say, oh, yeah, he's being a bit sceptical about some of this stuff, um, let me say this. Uh, there is a theory, I think uh, I mentioned Andrew earlier, Andrew Marr, uh, who is, say, the, you know, the, the sharpest of observers of uh, the contemporary British scene and the past. Um, I think he thinks that the monarchy could be in trouble because he, he's an admirer of the Queen almost as an individual, but uh, thinks the institution might not uh, survive without her. I've got absolutely no doubt it will flourish. 
And in a way, you know, the Charles thing, I mean, part of her, is, is the word appeal appropriate? I think it is. Part of her appeal was the enigma, the mystery. She got the vocation. It's not really a job, is it? Vocation. At such a young age, um, she had not fully developed as a public uh, figure and so then uh, disappeared into the mysteries of the uh, crown and being monarch. Uh, and so she remained enigmatic and that was part of the lure, I think. Um, now, that can't apply to her successor because he is over 70 People know so much about his life compared with hers because so much more has happened before he got it. And therefore, there is less of a mystery and enigma. But there are things that he's got that she didn't have. He, his voice, and voice matters a lot in this context because, you know, the actual words are very limited that these people can say. But the voice is a melodious voice. It's a rather captivating voice. And although I've heard again and again and again, oh, the Queen had a wonderful sense of humour, um, there is limited evidence of this. Yes, brilliant with Paddington, Bear and the kind of things that have been cited 25,000 times in recent days. Uh, but he really has got a sense of humour. He was a huge admirer of the goons, another group, by the way, that defined an era more vividly, I think. Um, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers and that lot. Um, so he has, I think, advantages and a charm at times, uh, which I don't think she really possessed. And when you look at the uh, response to the death, there is no doubt in this country the hunger for royalty is undying and, and, and has never really been uh, in, in any doubt at all. When Diana died in that dramatic late summer of 1997 and crowds gathered in London when the Queen and others were at Balmoral, some misinterpreted those gatherings as kind of almost acts of insurrection and went on to interpret this as the royal family being in trouble. It was the exact opposite. Uh, they were calling out for the royal family to be amongst them. Um, they, th their only concern was that they were up in Balmoral. Um, they wanted the Queen to be with them and the others. And so they all came down and the people were grateful once more. It was not remotely Republican. And when you hear reports of a million people who are going to queue for up to 24 hours um, to pass the coffin at Westminster, uh, this is a country wholly at ease uh, with the royal family and will continue to be. And if in the unlikely event that Charles screws it up, uh, the clamour will not be for the end of the monarchy, uh, but the call will come for, come on, Prince William, let, let Prince William be king and reign over us and rule over us. Um, that will be the call, not, I wonder if this works. Um, so it is an institution uh, that will endure and is a sort of match for this country. Uh, where few pay any attention to politics. Us lot, as we've discussed many times, are very, very unusual in that respect. Um, 
And that's another observation I would make. I, w I just wish a 20th of the uh, energy and attention um, that some people are giving to what is a sad but static sequence in these coming days. Just if, they, if a 20th of that energy and attention to, you know, why their bills are so high, why um, if they book a train ticket, it's so expensive, instead of kind of accepting, oh, yeah, that train thing was expensive, paying it and forgetting it and being, as we've discussed here before, kind of passive in the face of volcanic things going on. And yet, responding to this as if it touched that, well, it does clearly touch their lives on one level, but it won't change the course of their lives. It was very interesting. Tracy Crouch, the Conservative MP, who's fantastic. Um, she, she sits behind me at Spurs, and I knew her before then. She's really terrific, I and mean, she was a great sports minister. Um, but her speech was widely hailed uh, in the comments uh, when MPs paid tribute by ending tearfully by saying her, her young child had said, um, who will look after us now? The Queen has died. And, and she said, don't worry, King Charles will look after us. But what, uh, you know, somebody tweeted, I think Owen Jones tweeted, what does it mean, look after us? In, in what form? Uh, what policies will protect us? And, and, and there you have to turn into the world of democratic politics. But people turn away from that world, preferring uh, this one. This is another kind of orthodoxy, which I would like to politely challenge, uh, going back to the comments and those speeches. The speeches are, have been widely praised, Boris Johnson's, Keir Starmer's, uh, Harriet Harman's, um, and they were all great speeches. Um, I watched them and they were perfectly crafted. But I have to say this, it is much, much, much easier making a speech in a sad context when you are paying tribute to an individual who is revered. Um, uh, you know, I remember when John Smith died suddenly and tragically um, in 1994, and the House of Commons met to pay tributes, and John Major, who was under huge political pressure at the time and was not regarded as a great speechmaker, made a terrific speech paying tribute to John Smith. And, and people were saying, oh, why can't he do this all the time? Why can't the House of Commons be like it is today? And there's been a bit of this around, you know, the tributes to the Queen are the House of Commons at its best. It's not. We'd live in a dictatorship if the House of Commons was like this all the time, with everybody agreeing and sort of paying tribute to various people. The real challenge of speechmaking is when you have to put a case, an argument, uh, not uh, revere and uh, show your uh, reverence to an individual. Um, that's the challenge, and it's much, much harder. Boris Johnson never did it. He never made uh, an impressive parliamentary speech putting the case on a policy ever. And indeed, his column writing was never really about policy. The challenge for Keir Starmer is to make brilliant speeches, putting his case. I think he started to do it, by the way. The Prime Minister's questions um, the day before the Queen died, he was, he was very effective about narrowing down what the political choice is uh, in reference to the uh, 
capping of energy bills. Um, it's it's the framing of arguments about policy, which is a real challenge. And after John Smith died in 1994, very quickly politics returned to normal. Although, of course, in a different context, Tony Blair became leader. John Major was criticised again for not being very good in the House of Commons, etc., etc. Um, these periods where judgments and criteria change are very interesting but fleeting. Um, and finally, on the House of Commons, I do think historians from across the political spectrum will look back at this period with a degree of bewilderment. Um, no government from July when Boris Johnson announced he was standing down until Liz Truss took over last week. And now no scrutiny until after the Queen's funeral or policymaking with the economy on edge. Now, we can all debate what is proportionate or not uh, in the context of the news that has saddened so many. But I would argue that with the economy on the edge of a cliff, there should be space for scrutiny over Liz Truss's announcement on price capping. It was one of the most extraordinary announcements I can recall, where there was this commitment to freeze prices for this winter and the next winter without any costings attached. And I think there are two or maybe three reasons for this. One, it was so rushed, there was no time to have any authoritative costings behind it. Two, they're probably terrified about the impact on the market if they did it. And three, they can't be entirely sure, certainly for next winter, what vast sums will be required to keep these bills frozen. That merits a lot of scrutiny. Now, I know it will happen. Of course it will happen. But it will happen very close to the edge of implementation. This is going to have to be implemented in October. Um, so there won't be any sort of feasible way of uh, challenging with practical consequences. That word again. Um, and I just do think it odd at the end of a summer where there's been in effect no government in this fantastical leadership contest, that when there has been an announcement of profound consequence, um, not just for energy bills and use of energy, but for the economy as a whole, there is nothing. And I know there are many calculations as to why everything is paused, from football matches to any kind of political discussion at all amongst political representatives. I fully understand, but I think part of it, frankly, is a fear of anything making the front page of the Daily Mail and people being uh, slaughtered for not showing enough respect. And that's not a great reason for the, a pause of this extent. On that, there's a kind of other interesting fleeting thoughts. Uh, the BBC coverage has been uh, pitch perfect and no adverts, so you get a sense of the continuous sequence. Although, as I said at the beginning, the story is uh, sad but static. And, uh, you know, again, it's very interesting. The BBC, the impartial BBC, 
um, celebrating the life of the impartial monarch. It's it, it's a dance which works, but at the moment the BBC is really struggling with uh, political reporting and analysis and programming, um, and it needs to think much deeper about why that is. Of course, it's a perfect match: the impartial BBC and the impartial monarch the one who has died, the one who has succeeded. Um, and they did it terrifically, and the presenters were tonally great. It, there was too much, but that was inevitable and unavoidable. They'd been rehearsing this for years. I was a BBC political correspondent having to do these rehearsals in the 1990s. Um, you know, it's been going on for years and years. And, and because they were attacked by the Daily Mail for the way they initially covered the Queen Mother's funeral, um, after that, there was no question. They, were, you know, they weren't going to risk a front page attack. Um, but uh, so, yeah. And in terms of the people, you know, although I think it is excessive, frankly, to queue for 24 hours, if that is really what's going to happen to pass the uh, coffin of the Queen. I get the impression going out and about, there is a kind of sense of proportion. You know, I was kind of out in on Friday and people weren't talking about it uh, obsessively. And similarly on Saturday, and this I'm not talking about London people, we were out, uh, out of London. Um, but we were out of London when the Queen Mother died, and there was also a sense of proportion. We were in Derbyshire, kind of Red Wall territory, actually. And in the pubs that evening, there was a sense of proportion. But I have to say, by the end of that week, um, people were completely whipped up by what became wall-to-wall -wall coverage after the front-page Daily Mail attacks. That was the Queen Mother. And um, I suspect by Monday of next week, there will have been a similar whipping up. Um, but um, yeah, finally, on a different note, I noticed Gordon Brown in his interview with the BBC said he thought that uh, Prince Charles was interesting. King Charles, sorry. King Charles uh, was interested more in a scaled-down monarchy closer to the Northern European ones. I think that would be good. But I wonder whether even if he wants to do it, he will have the space to do it. Anyway, those are some of my reflections on the kind of observations that are being made uh, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. It's always the, it's the same observations. Oh, yeah, there's another one I was going to talk about, uh, that she's the glue that has held the country together. Really? Um, you know, Scottish nationalism at its peak, um, unrest in Northern Ireland, um, you know, would it be worse if she had not been there? I, I don't know what is meant by these terms that are used, say, on a sort of hourly basis. And that's not to in any way criticise her. Um, it is to just, again, make an observation. What, what do these cliches precisely mean? Thank you for listening to a few of my uh, reflections. Now let's move on to your questions. And we begin with uh, Noah Keat, who says, I imagine uh, your whole podcast will be focused on the sad news of the Queen's death. Well, as you can see, Noah, it has been uh, so far. Um, 
Regardless of one's constitutional views, I wonder whether the continuation of a constitutional monarch in the UK is uh, in part thanks to the Queen's effective remoulding of her role and influence over the decades. It seems King Charles also has an awareness of this, given he looks set to uh, comment far less on politics as king. Yeah, he will. Although I have to say it was very controversial what he did as uh, a prince, but God, was he right about the environment and way ahead of his time. Uh, but now he will be silenced, I suspect, uh, and he, he has hinted that he will be uh, and change his role uh, in this particular way. But again, no doubt there will be cliches in when he dies. Oh, he defined an era, did he, if he can't really speak out on anything? But if he were to speak out on anything, of course, justifiably, all hell will break loose. I just point out the conundrum. Um, but yeah, you, you are right that at times, although I think it is exaggerated, uh, the Queen did show an adaptability to changing times to some extent, but, you know, not wholly, frankly. Um, James Munro writes, uh, did I watch David Dimbleby's documentary series on Days that shook the BBC. I thought it was quite good. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, I did watch it. And I was so impressed by his his tone and presence on those documentaries. He's remarkable, David Dimbleby. He's got a capacity. Some of it was quite critical of the BBC, but he does it in such a restrained way um, and so calm and seemingly removed from the frenzy, although part of it as a central figure at the BBC. Yeah, I thought it was good. I mean, I don't think it delved especially deeply in terms of one of the themes we've all explored on this podcast about how the BBC establishes a distinct role amidst all the noise um, and what it means to be impartial. It, it, but, but you can't really do that in 50 minutes TV. I thought they were very watchable. James. Uh, and I'm pleased you did too. Uh, Anthony Wilson says, Dear Steve, thank you as ever for the podcast. Thank you, Anthony, uh, which I've been enjoying in various places over the summer, not least the Alps of Slovenia. What, oh, well, what a location. We should all try that. Um, putting the podcast on and walking the Alps of Slovenia. Uh, I enjoyed, oh, we're back on the BBC, your recent comments on the BBC and Joe Lysett. One thinks of past labour, oh yeah, and the use of humour as a political weapon. One thinks of past labour titans who used it so effectively, Foote, Healy, Ben, Cook, and so on. Surely this is a tactic which Keir Starmer and his allies should deploy more often. Emily Thornbury is very good at it. Um, yeah, I, I have said it many times, uh, Anthony, that humour is an absolutely vital political weapon and successful leaders deploy it uh, and you know and if they haven't instinctively got it as public figures acquire it and people say thatcher was the great exception but it's an exception that proves the rule to be honest and even she tried at times i don't think she was as humorless as caricature suggests um, but some of the others used it and when people are laughing with you as a political leader i mean voters uh, you've got them you've really got them and it explains the appeal of many, Blair, Wilson, Cameron, and others. Uh, thank you, Anthony. I agree with you. Uh, Stuart Wolvin writes, 
if the Tories have tried austerity to reduce spending and increase growth, and in the end it hasn't worked, and they're now borrowing money to reduce taxes to stimulate growth, does this suggest they're really struggling for the solution? If the Tories are struggling to find growth uh, on ability to meet spending commitments, won't Labour as well? How would they do it? I had thought the productivity problem was linked to investment, innovation or skills, not tax levels. But this answer may be too unclear and not electorally viable. If the Labour answer is borrowing for investment, that might be hard to sell to the electorate, who might just like the tax cuts. Um, oh, and oh, Stuart says he's going to uh, link to the show. Oh, well, don't re- remember now, Stuart, Thursday week uh, the show is on. So uh, if you're not in London or you know, within a train journey, yeah, watch it on, uh, uh, what's it called? Stream, the live stream with a glass of wine or something. Um, but it's more fun if you can get into it uh, because we then can delve deep collectively. Um, yeah, no, th- there are potential traps in all of this for Labour. They are obvious ones, so there are ways in which you can prepare for it. But for example, Truss is planning to borrow hundreds of billions uh, of pounds. That's going to be the cost of uh, the energy price freeze, the spending she needs to raise for the NHS, um, the tax cuts that she's pledged to implement. Um, But if the economy is growing from the depths by the time of the election, she will say, look, A, it's working. B, don't let Labour ruin it. And of course, Labour have got their own plans to borrow. They don't. They want a windfall tax to pay for a lot of the price freeze, but they have £28 billion a year committed to their so-called sort of green revolution, um, which could lead to economic growth as well as tackling to climate change. Um, but they're going to borrow. Now, if borrowing has been pushed past its limits already, what do they do? Um, also, you are right, tax cuts, the, uh, the media will make sure tax cuts are popular. Um, the newspapers hailing, you know, Liz putting money in our pockets, Liz is freeing us up to spend what we earn and stuff. It's always difficult. So there are challenges, but at least Labour know what the traps are uh, 18 months, two years away from the next general election and can get ready for it. A uh, whole podcast on that, maybe at the week of the Labour Party conference, Stuart. Uh, John McIntosh. Yeah, he, he writes very interestingly uh, uh, about, um, yeah, do you remember I was saying one of the models that I find very effective in terms of delivery is the London mayoral one, certainly in relation to transport. Uh, and I cited the example of Ken Livingston, who um, uh, recognised that there weren't many people in Britain with experience of infrastructure projects. So he brought in Bob Kiley uh, from the New York to run the improvements in the underground. He was up against uh, New Labour and Gordon Brown's uh, disastrous public-private partnership scheme, which was basically the government took all the risks, the private sector none, but they were too scared to sort of do anything that implied public ownership. So it was all convoluted. And uh, yeah, uh, John quotes... uh, Ken Livingston, what Kevin Livingston wrote when uh, Bob Kiley died, he died in 2016. And it's quite interesting as a reminder of all the kind of topsy-turvy 
factors that come into service delivery uh, in Britain. Uh, Livingston wrote, When I became mayor, London Underground was such a mess, the bureaucracy was a shambles, and we desperately needed to bring in someone who could make changes. There was no one else who could do the job. Bob Kiley brought in a whole new team, and together they completely transformed the Underground. During this time, he also delivered other big successes, including the congestion charge and Oyster Cart, which came in and worked from day one, despite some people's predictions. The one disappointment was Gordon Brown's pushing through the tube public-private partnership, despite us saying he should let Bob get on with the work, which needed doing. If he had, the tube would be completely transformed today with all new trains and signalling. But Gordon refused to even meet with Bob, despite normally being in love with all things American. In the end, Bob was proven right and TFL had to take over those PPP contractors. There have been many improvements, but Bob would have got them done sooner. Yeah, very interesting. You know, I remember that early new Labour phase and it was obvious those public-private partnerships weren't going to work. It was done for political reasons, a fear of appearing to take over the public sector, a fear of giving Livingston too much control um, and fear as an emotion in British politics, certainly on the Labour side, uh, drives far too much. Uh, I understand why they're fearful. They hardly ever win elections. They have a hostile media. But thats I think it's a very vivid example of where fear failed and where innovative ways of delivering public services are worth thinking about elsewhere. Edwin Liu writes, I've been listening to the podcast pretty much since you started, but I've only decided to write in at this stage, having recently been freed from restrictions on public comment. I've just left the Singapore Public Service. Um, Now, this is really interesting because as uh, we all know, sorry, this is me speaking now, um, Liz Truss's vision, uh, along with the hardline Brexiteers, Rhys Mogg and others, Lord Frosty Frost, is a Singapore on Thames. But... This is from within Singapore. He says the the reality is very different. Singapore had the courage and conviction to effectively expropriate private land owners. um, And the state is still the freeholder for nearly 90% of land in the country. The government continues to directly build thousands of subsidized public housing flats every year. A huge swathe of the economy the largest local bank, the national airline, etc., is majority owned or indirectly controlled by the National Sovereign Wealth Fund. And the government works strategically with these national champions to plan ahead for the future. So, yeah, Singapore on Thames sounds kind of like um, the 1945 Clem Attlee Labour government here um, in comparison to the sort of cliché Uh, as envisaged by the hardline Brexiteers who've run Britain really since 2016 and before, which is lightly regulated, market-dominated, privately owned, uh, low-tax economy. So how interesting. Thank you for that. More insights, please, because I think we're going to hear more about Singapore on Thames in the UK, Edwin, uh, as we move towards the next election. Thank you. Uh, Edward Jackman says, I'm a recent convert to your podcast after my girlfriend booked us tickets to your King's Place live show, uh, which was just which was the episode just before Putin invaded Ukraine. I found that a difficult one to do um, if you saw that one live, uh, uh, Edward. Um, so, yeah, I think they're usually better than that. It was all very dark, that Ukraine show at uh, King's Place. Anyway, 
Edward goes on to say, I've just finished reading a very interesting book by the geopolitical strategist Peter Zeihan. It's a detailed analysis of what he sees as the breaking down of globalization set against the backdrop of rapidly aging demographics across the developing and developed world. He makes special claims about the economic problems that will be caused during the 2020s as the baby boomer generation begins to retire en masse. Yeah, we're all getting older. Uh, demography seems to be something that's seldom mentioned as a cause for economic problems. It's a huge issue, Edward. You're right. It's not talked about that often. But a leader should say, how do we pay for an elderly population? And the answer partly is what leaders are going on about economic growth and higher productivity, which can then pay for the public services that the elderly population need, especially health and social care. Uh, but it's not addressed enough. It's it's a challenge. And there are answers to that challenge. But part of it involves higher public spending on the health service. Clearly, it's obvious, um, as well as a more efficient one. Um, and you get that through other means. But yeah, it, it needs to be discussed more. And finally, from Laundry Joe. Uh, now, last week, Steve Petrie said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Start set up a rock and roll politics cooperative choir and do some, you know, some of your listeners aren't doing enough glamorous things. And he cited those who listen to the podcast while doing their laundry. Now, Laundry Joe is legendary for doing his laundry while listening to the podcast. So he says, in retort, there's a quiet dignity in the hard work of laundry and ensuring that my kids have clean iron clothes, free from pasta sauce, glitter and Play-Doh, and that the deluge of housework is kept at bay. Labour's biggest problem was never that it was filled with Guardian-reading Oxbridge-educated snobs indifferent to people's problems. Its problem is that it's filled with Guardian-reading Oxbridge-educated snobs who are indifferent to people's achievements. I don't, I don't think Steve Petrie is. Oxford educated laundry Joe. But well, I, I think I did say at the time when Steve Petrie wrote this that um, I regarded all these other pursuits as glamorous as well. And I certainly put laundry in there as glamorous, perhaps not as glamorous as listening to the podcast whilst walking in the Alps, but running it pretty close, laundry Joe. I've had a few more uh, emails in, in recent days. Um, keep them coming in. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. But I think you'll all agree it's a very unusual week, so I think I'm going to uh, stop there. But we'll get together again uh, next week um, to make sense of it all. And just a reminder that now... The Liz Trust special and the new era uh, for other reasons too, although maybe perhaps not as significant as the Liz Trust development. It's now Thursday, September the 22nd at King's Place and streaming live at King's Place. So I hope to see as many of you as possible there for that. Um, but let's get together next week. Uh, next week, by the way, it will include uh, an interview with Nick Thomas-Simmons about his book on Harold Wilson. Many kind of lessons in that book, I think, for now. But anyway, thanks so much for tuning in. It's going to be a strange few days, uh, but let's get together again very soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.